and welcome back to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And we're both really excited about today's episode. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> and we'll get to the the theme of today's conversation in just a minute. But because once we get started, we're probably just going to be babbling like overflowing fountains because of this excitement. Let's just get the social media shout outs out of the way, you think, off the top? I think that's a good idea. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Go ahead and give us a follow on them, especially for this episode. We're going to be posting some really cool things that are going to go along with this episode. So you're definitely going to want to follow us if you already aren't. And then you can also find our podcast for your listening ears on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. We are National Treasure Hunt and, you know, feel free to subscribe, rate, review us. Uh, we love hearing what you guys have to say about us. And we really appreciate all of the uh, reviews that we get. So keep them coming. Yeah, thank you everyone who has taken the time to do that so far. We really do appreciate it. But without further ado, let's dive straight into today's very exciting episode. And I do want to point out, we are very quickly nearing the end of the first season of our show. This time is flying. But there's a reason that we saved this episode for later on in this first season. And that's because we feel so passionately about today's subject that we had to do it extreme justice. So we needed to get our, our podcasting chops down a little bit before we took on this, this topic. So without further ado, today's episode is going to take a look at some of the scientific aspects of national treasure. So if you are a super fan like us, you might know that there are a lot of plot points that are either directly scientific in nature or they are, you know, alluding to science in some way. And so much like we did for episode two of our show, where we were looking at historical plot points and telling you the truth behind them or whether they were totally off base, that's what we're going to be doing here today with these science points. We're going to be explaining what the true science is behind those points and telling you whether or not those points are legit. And the reason Emily and I are so excited about this episode is because, you know, if you missed us on episode one where we first introduced ourselves, we're actually scientists by training ourselves. And so we took this episode extremely seriously <laughs> or else we couldn't really call ourselves scientists, right? So for everyone's background, we do, we're totally justified in taking on this topic today. Yes. Um, Emily, you want to talk about your academic background real quick? Yeah, sure. So I am a neuroscience graduate student, so I have to say some of the things that I am going to be talking about in this episode are a little outside of my area of expertise, as very few of them, uh, and by very few read none of them, have to do with <laughs> the brain. However, I feel that I was able to apply the scientific method in a very true and rigorous fashion, which I have learned over my many years in science. 
And that's really what being a scientist is, right? It's learning how to analyze information and and judge the validity of resources, etc. Like Emily, I also am a scientist. I have a PhD in chemistry and material science, and I also did an undergraduate degree before that in biology. So again, we are here for you to break down these topics today and have a lot of fun doing it. So the way we're going to break down this episode is that we are going to start by reminding you of the context with which a particular scientific aspect was shown in the film. As if then you we, even need us to do that. Seriously, but. especially if they've been keeping track of, of our episodes. This is all going to be, that part's going to be redundant. A lot of inside jokes going here. <laughs> For sure. After the context, we'll break down a bit of the science, explain to you what's real or what was inspired by real science in the movie. And then in the end, we're going to answer the ultimate question. Is it legit? And so that's going to be the most fun part, I think. And we'll wrap up uh, the episode today with more of a speed round where we'll go into a little bit less detail, but we'll get back to those fun social media contents that Emily alluded to earlier uh, in our intro. So without further ado, Em, I think you're going to kickstart us today. We will try to go through these topics in chronological order. So the first point that we're going to discuss today is really hearkening back to the beginning of the film where our protagonists and our antagonists, I guess, find <laughs> <laughs> they find the Charlotte, the ship in the Arctic Circle, and they're confronted with a very dangerous situation because the entire ship is filled with gunpowder, and of course they have fire. So we see the ship blow up, and uh, we wanted to know, would the gunpowder still explode like that? Would it still light? given the fact that it has been sitting in the bowels of the ship for centuries in the extreme cold. So, Emily, what can you tell us here? Well, let me tell you that, first of all, I just want to address this fire point real quick about the fact that they had fire in this ship. Uh, why they thought that was a good idea. I mean, Nick Cage... <laughs> Nick Cage. Ben did it in order to, like, threaten Ian, but still it wasn't great. And then at a certain point, I have to say, I was re-watching this scene this week, and at a certain point, Ian kind of, like, lights himself on fire, which <laughs> is very interesting, and that's the point at which he drops the flare onto the gunpowder, which then lights it on fire. So I just thought it was interesting to note that. And it also seems like there's some kind of delay between the time that the gunpowder caught fire and the actual ship exploding, because conveniently... Ian and his henchmen were able to get out of the ship after things had already lit on fire and were able to be well away from the ship before it blew up. So I wanted that's, to check that out as well. That's a really great note. Like, is that movie magic or is that legit? Well, let me tell you a little bit more about what they call gunpowder. So gunpowder is the earliest known chemical explosive. It's also actually known as black powder. And fun fact, that is actually what they used to blow up the ship when they were filming the movie. So if you look at the behind the scenes reel from the movie, you actually will hear them referring to black powder and using explosives made of black powder in setting the scene for the ship to explode. So black powder or gunpowder is made of sulfur, 
charcoal, and potassium nitrate. Now, sulfur and charcoal are fuels. So that's their main source in this little chemical reaction that we have going on here. Interestingly, sulfur also lowers the temperature that is needed to ignite the mixture. And by doing that, it actually increases the rate of combustion for the mixture as a whole. I did so not that's know that. An important point to keep in mind. Now, the third portion of this chemical mixture is potassium nitrate. Now, potassium nitrate is the oxidizer, and the entire chemical combustion process relies on oxygen that's released from this reaction that occurs. Now, something that I found is that this is actually, ironically, when you look at the scene in the movie, considered a low explosive, which is yeah. interesting. That basically means that the rate of decomposition through the material is actually slower than the speed of sound. Wait, so high what? explosives <laughs> have what are known as shock waves and travel at the speed of sound or above the speed of sound. Interesting. So considered a low explosive, so the, the speed of it is a little slowed down from what you might normally expect from an explosive device. Now, we're going to get some fun words coming up in here, so just bear with me. These low explosives, this gunpowder, can deflagrate. Yeah, I have no idea what that word is. Okay. <laughs> is subsonic combustion that propagates through heat transfer. It's important to note that this is actually different than detonation, which is really the only point you need to know from this, is that okay. it's just slightly different than the detonation, but I got to say some cool sciencey words in there, so. <laughs> anyway, they can deflagrate very quickly which often happens under high pressure or temperatures when the gunpowder is ignited in a confined space. Now, I will remind you at this point that they were in a ship, which is not the most confined space you can be in, but given the amount of gunpowder that was in the ship, it was a, it was a fairly confined space for, I'd say, that amount of gunpowder. So keep in mind that in this condition, it's going to deflagrate very quickly. Okay. Okay, so the real question that you want to know is, could this have happened? Well, could, yeah, could it have happened because, you know, of the conditions of being in the ship over that amount of time, um, being buried under the ice for, for years, and yeah, and that whole, that whole speed thing that you pointed out. Now I kind of want to know that too. <laughs> yeah, so it does seem like this is legit, which I was surprised by. So funnily enough, it doesn't seem like the cold actually affects gunpowder. The biggest, uh, the biggest, I guess you could say, antagonist of gunpowder is moisture. So as long as it's freezing cold, oh. you're going to be okay, right? As long as there's no moisture in there, it's going to be fine. The cold would affect the gunpowder if it was loaded in a gun, which <laughs> was also fired in freezing temperatures. But that's not what's happening here. Right, because... Yeah, but so what you're saying is if the if it was already in a gun, the gun would no longer shoot. The gun would shoot, but it would shoot more slowly. And that's actually the next point that I'm going to get to. Because in okay. fact, it seems that in that situation where if the loaded gun was fired in freezing temperatures with freezing gunpowder, the velocity of the bullet would actually be slowed down slightly because of the cold. So what this suggested to me is that that could help to explain the slight time lapse that we see between when the gunpowder was lit 
and when the ship actually exploded, because there are some differences that occur with pressure in the environment, depending on what the temperature is. So ultimately, it's still going to explode, but the matter of how fast it explodes might be slightly different. So I think that that is kind of how that situation worked out for us in the movie. Interesting. I like how you were able to find some scientific justification for what was ultimately very much movie magic. That was cool. (laughs) Well, yeah, I got to (laughs) try. For sure. Okay, so so we've learned a little bit about gunpowder in the cold. In a related or almost the same scene, we have another thing or a condition that has some science involved in theory. And this is something that I think a lot of viewers online criticize the movie over. And that is the fact that to survive the explosion, of course, you mentioned how Ian and co have time to leave the ship, but Riley and Ben are trapped in the ship and they survive the explosion by climbing into what Ben calls the smuggler's hold of the ship and basically kind of waiting out the explosion there. So I think a lot of people are like, yeah, of course they wouldn't survive. Or would they? What can you tell us about the smuggler's hold? Well, I have to say that much of many of the questions that you're saying, uh, you know, people online are posing are also posed by me. And in many versions of this story are still being posed by me because let me tell you that when you google smuggle smugglers hold on a ship you get like zero google results really yeah it's like you really don't find much interesting okay so for a while i was going with the i was like okay well i'm gonna use a cargo hold instead because that seems like you know it's it's bigger but we'll go with that and then I found a mention of it specifically in an article that talked about the movie that mentioned that a smuggler's hold is apparently like a cargo trunk that's hidden at the bottom of the ship in order to hide items that were being smuggled into foreign countries. So there would be a cargo hold as well, and the smuggler's hold would be an additional thing. And this was actually backed up by the fact that when I was re-watching some of those behind-the-scenes videos about the explosions and stuff... One of the things that the directors and the producers were talking about was that they were in the cargo hold of the ship. So if you'll remember, they were walking around and they came across these hammocks that had some dead bodies in them and Riley Mm -hmm. kind of freaked out. And that is actually in the cargo hold of the ship. So that indicates that it is something different than the smuggler's hold. Okay, interesting. Good find. Yeah, so with that noted... I should still mention that was about the only thing I could find about a smuggler's hole. So (laughs) I was forced to kind of like go outside of the box with the scientific reasoning behind this. Better be scientific, Em. (laughs) Some of it is. Your career depends on it. Yeah, really. So what I should note is that, you know, on this scientific quest of mine, I did find some fan theories about other things that I did want to bring up because I felt that they were scientifically reasoned in their own sense. And it was actually the first time that I'd heard about them. So someone online. Can I just, can I just interject really quickly and and state on the record that Emily Black has just called basically fan theories or even, you know, almost fanfic scientific. 
So people put thought into these things, Aubrey. That's true. I guess in a and way we, we aren't much better. <laughs> no, doing this and there was podcast. reasoning behind this. Okay, let's they hear had it. like bulleted lists of reasons, so they they put a lot of thought into it. All right, hit me. Okay, so the online theory is that Ben and Riley actually die during the explosion. I reject this. And the rest of the movie is Ben's journey in the afterlife. I completely reject this. And they point out that there are multiple reasons why this could be true, including the fact that every time that Ben needs to solve a clue, he like magically can, he knows the answer to it, or there's somebody right with him that knows the answer to it. And things keep kind of, you know, popping up that seem to help him out. If this were if this were all just like a beautiful dream or afterlife state, then he would not be being chased by a maniac trying to kill him to get the treasure. Well, nobody said the afterlife was fun. You just find billion dollar treasures. Yeah, and get chased. Regardless, this I thought was <laughs> interesting. I obviously don't agree with that theory necessarily, but it's an interesting thought process to go through. Now back to the explosion and the smuggler's hold. So something that I saw when once again, I was watching these behind the scenes videos. This is a direct quote from one of the special effects people who did this kind of thing. And they said, we've got to get this explosion big enough for the villain to think that the hero has been killed, but small enough so that the audience can believe that the hero wasn't. Now, based on what you said, it it doesn't sound like a lot of the audience believes that the hero wasn't killed. And based on this one fan theory that I found, clearly they don't believe that. But the villains have to think that they've been killed. I have to say that watching this explosion happen again and again, it's really hard for me to believe that they would have survived in the smuggler's hole just because of the sheer amount of wood and other splinterings that are all around them. I feel like they would have been explo- at least been in- at least been very injured at least been injured sure which they were not <laughs> and so then you know i'm thinking they probably would not have survived but then i'm like okay well i have to take this one step further we got to be somewhat scientific about this it can't just be like what i think happened fair so looking at the scene again and again i i this scene i have memorized because i basically watched it like 30 times just Dang. to analyze this part commitment so- Hard to tell, but it seems like everything in the ship is made out of wood. Okay. Which makes it hard to believe that they would have survived the explosion because, you know, fire. Okay. And wood. And even when he closed the door to the smuggler's hold, the door looked as though it was made of wood. I thought, oh, maybe if it's made of metal, we have we have a theory here for how they could have survived. But no, it looked like it was made of wood as well. So I would argue that, is this legit? I would say probably not. Granted, that is based mainly off of my own scientific reasoning. Mm-hmm. But I would like to point out for the record that, you know, if the ship is made of wood, if the smuggler's hold is made of wood, it doesn't matter how far down in the ship it is. Right, because the cargo holds right above the smuggler's hold. Yeah, because what you're saying is if there is an explosion and, you know, the explosion is dissipating energy, it's all shooting upward. You know, if you're at the very bottom, maybe you're going to be okay. But if there's fire and everything and the bottom is also wood, then why would you be okay? And something that you see when they are, when they get down the hole 
-hmm. and then they run to close they have like there's another little room kind of that they go into within the smuggler's hole i don't really understand how it works but they went down and then they go into some other room and as they're running to that other room you see like sparks and stuff Mm -hmm. like coming down through the ceiling which tells Mm -hmm. me that like that area would have also lit on fire interesting so all of that being said i don't think they could have survived okay I don't think that they died and that the whole movie was a story about, you know, Ben stranding the afterlife. But I don't think that scientifically speaking, they necessarily could have survived by just going into the smuggler's hold. It doesn't seem. Okay. Well, that's definitely a downer because it's sort of the launch point for the whole film. But I appreciate your candor. (laughs) (laughs) I tried really hard. Thank you. (laughs) All right. uh, What's next here? So, Aubrey, I think you are going to tell us a little bit about that blacklight powder that is on the campaign button. So, if you guys will remember, there's a certain point in the film when Ben is, you know, planning to steal the Declaration of Independence and he's, you know, hanging out with Abigail. He needs her password. He needs to get into that employee-only section of the archives to get that DOI, that Declaration of Independence. So, what does he do? He dips the George Washington campaign button that she is missing and he gifts her in a solution of yellow powder and water, which glows under blacklight. Aubrey, can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, I can. And I think this is interesting because it's definitely the first instance in the film, I think, where people would be like, oh, science. Is that real? What is that? You know, and so, of course, yeah, he sends her this button that's been dipped in this mysterious solution. And when she receives it, she opens up the box and, you know, is touching that uh, that campaign button, which we can argue whether or not she would do that if she's a serious collector anyway. But she does. <laughs> she's uh, running her fingertips all over that campaign button. And later nice on. Nice and oiled up. Nice. Exactly. And later on that day, of course, uh, we have. Well, I guess we're jumping ahead a little, but Riley basically gets the plan in motion that causes her to uh, go type her password on the computer to go to see the declaration down in the uh, in the archives vaults. So, mm-hmm. so there's definitely an assumption in this plan. Uh, there are a couple of assumptions here uh, to make this work, even if the science is legit. And we'll get to that part in a minute. But I do want to throw out there that. First of all, Ben was assuming that Abigail was going to be, you know, putting her fingers all over that button. Which, to be fair, she did. She did. He he clearly knows her very well, having met her for all of 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And second, she has to receive the button on the same day that Riley ends up setting off the heat sensors in the declaration mm. case. Right? Because to, to, to make sure that her fingers are still covered in this whatever we'll get to it in a sec so so basically the question here is first of all can we figure out what this chemical solution is that ben used of you know highlighter yellow powder to to put this whole heist into action is it real and how does it work and so it turns out that what he's using here very basically is a powder that fluoresces under ultraviolet light Hmm. so it turns out that such a powder not only does it exist, but it's super common and you can buy it online from a million different suppliers, whether it be someone on Amazon or different craft stores, you name it. 
it comes in various colors, both the powder form and the color that it fluoresces under UV light. Mm. And I know we're, we can see the wheels are turning. I and I'm purchased this already. <laughs> right. And it has so many uses too. I think this is really interesting. People use it in art. They use it in anti-fake coatings. So, um, you know, if you want to see if someone's touching something or trying to manipulate mm -hmm. something, um, or people even use it to figure out if there are rodents in their house and like where they're Aww. coming, from, where they're going. Cause like if they step in it and then start walking. Yeah. Right? So, so yeah, there, there are also many chemical variants of this powder. So what it's made of, you know, from a chemistry perspective, um, and some of those variants have different properties, not only the color, but, you know, what they can be dissolved in. So some of them are insoluble. Some of them are, can be dissolved in water or other solvents. Um, and just for a quick technical note, because if there are any scientists out here, I don't want it to sound like we, we aren't doing our due diligence here. This powder in particular is different from glow in the dark powder, right? So, mm -hmm. So a glow-in-the-dark powder usually is something that needs to be charged by, you know, shining a light on it, whether that be visible light or ultraviolet. And then when it's in the dark, it sort of emanates. It's almost like um, solar power. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, you can you can think of that as an analogy for sure. But this is this is not that. In this case, you need ultraviolet light. So shorter wavelengths of light than what we are seeing with our, our eyes in the world to make this color show up. So to, to get that glow, if you will. Mm -hmm. So from a chemical composition standpoint, like I said, these powders come in many different, you know, flavors, if you will. Not really. You shouldn't, you should not eat them. I was going to say, I, <laughs> I, I won't, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they, they come in different variants depending on all of these different chemical characteristics. So for, again, if there are any scientists out there, the chemical compositions range from um, organic molecules that are chains of rings. So if you remember, you know, organic carbon or, you know, benzene rings that can be uh, chained together. So we have chains of, of carbon, basically. Another variant um, comes as thermoplastics, which are basically polymer chains that are temperature stable. So if there are temperature applications here, um, and then there are also metal oxides, which get you into some really interesting colors when you do the ultraviolet radiation. So for example, a really common one, uh, a common metal oxide structure is strontium aluminate. And this contains the atoms strontium, aluminum, and oxygen. And it's one of the more common metal-based um, UV powders, I guess you could say. This one in particular, I believe, begins colorless. So it looks white if you're just looking at it in regular old light. And then once you shine the light on it, that's when the color happens. But in any case, let's get back to the film here. So uh, we'll, we'll pull in all the folks who aren't sciencey and who are just curious, right? The yellow UV powder used in the film requires application of light in a particular UV wavelength range for it to actually, you know, glow, fluoresce, for lack of better terms, right? So specifically, in case you're interested, the light that you can shine on this powder can be anywhere from the 200 nanometer range to fairly blue light in the 450 nanometer range. And for some context, for anyone who isn't terribly familiar with wavelengths, um, you are actually familiar with 
ultraviolet or UV wavelengths, even if you don't realize it. And that's, of course, because uh, UV rays of certain wavelengths cause sunburn, uh -huh. right? Um, other uh, wavelengths of ultraviolet radiation can be used for disinfection in hospitals and stuff. My so, friends use that in lab. Yeah, for sure, right? So with this in mind, a point that I want to flag here <laughs> is the fact that, again, when they use the UV powder in the film, we already made some assumptions about when Abigail is going to do this and how she's going to touch the, the, the campaign button, etc. But I started wondering, Emily, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this. Did they have to assume that she also wouldn't wash her hands between the time that she touches the button and then goes and uses the keyboard? Oh, right? yeah. This is like my first question every time I see this scene. I'm like, did she not wash her hands? Did she not use the bathroom at all today? Like, what, what's been happening? Right. I, and, and I think that's something that bugs a lot of people, um, especially because it, you know, when when Ben is prepping the button, it looks like he's using this, a, a variant of UV powder that's water soluble, right? He puts the powder into a glass of what looks like water, stirs it up and then dips in the, the pit. Oh, yes. Right? So you would expect that the pigment would disappear from her fingers if she washed her hands thoroughly at any point before using that keyboard, if in fact that was a cup of water that he used. Mm -hmm. But there are two... Butt. There, There's a but here. I came up with two buts <laughs> that mm -hmm. might make it work anyway. The, the one isn't so much of... Here, you'll see what I mean. There are non-soluble variants of this powder that can be dry brushed onto things um, so that you know people use it for fingerprint exposure like in forensics okay. so if they had used that then it wouldn't necessarily have washed off her hands but still Ben didn't dry brush onto the pin right so we're still not looking good but and as a chemist this is where my brain is going to try to make this work okay mm -hmm. Let's assume for a minute that the glass that Ben had that he put the powder in and dipped the pin, the pin in, let's assume that that clear colorless liquid was not water, but was instead some organic solvent that looks a lot like water if you're not, you know, if you're just looking at it in a glass. It's clear, it's colorless, it's the same general viscosity of water. Let's say it's something like... Um, I don't know, this isn't going to mean anything to non-chemists out there, probably, but something like toluene or xylene. Yo, this... you got to use those things in a hood. You should. Have you smelled them? I have. And they're, what? like, carcinogenic? They're not great. But they're examples of hydrophobic solvents that could look a lot like water, and you can get... UV powder that is soluble in these materials instead of water. Ooh, ben taking so, his life in his hands. A, literally. Quite literally. Quite literally. But if we make that assumption, then uh, then we're all good here. And it kind of does make sense because it should theoretically stay on her hands, uh, even if she washes them briefly with water. Um, so is it legit, Em? I would say... Yeah, we can make some justifications here that would make this legit as long as they're timing their evil plan accordingly and um, as long as the movie isn't happening during the time of COVID where that keyboard is probably being wiped down every 20 minutes. Mm. 
I'd have to really get in with that in that 20 minute window, huh? Yeah. <laughs> then we'd get really challenging here. <laughs> well, that's super cool, Aubrey. So the next thing that I want you to talk about is this whole deal with the fingerprint exposure on this champagne flute. Mm-hmm. So just to remind everyone, in addition to needing to get Abigail's password, Ben also needs to get her fingerprint access to the preservation room via a biometric security system. And what that means is that it requires a fingerprint. So he <laughs> takes her champagne flute with her fingerprints on it and he like puts a Ziploc bag on, he got some crazy glue and apparently there's some iodine in there and the fingerprint gets like exposed in this bag on the flute in like 20 to 30 seconds. And then he like magically peels off this fingerprint. Like what's going on there? So this one's actually really, I don't know. I think this is cool for my research here. So basically in this case, we're asking ourselves whether there are methods for fingerprint exposure that can rely on iodine or some chemical in like super glue, right? And so it turns out that the short answer is yes. There are two methods of fingerprint exposure that we'll discuss in this brief section of the show called iodine fuming as well as cyanoacrylate fuming. And we're going to get to a point, I don't want to spoil whether or not it's legit yet, but these are two different methods that we're thinking about here. So let's, let's start with the super glue one. You, you mentioned that he puts what looks like crazy glue into this weird reaction chamber of a Ziploc bag, right? <laughs> so, so it turns out that super glue contains a chemical called cyanoacrylate hmm. and this particular chemical is attracted to the amino acids, the fatty acids, and the proteins that you would find in a latent fingerprint. So, of yeah. course, if, if if you haven't taken forensic science, a latent fingerprint is a fingerprint that's basically hidden or invisible, but it is comprised of oils and different chemicals from your skin. So, this technique of cyanoacrylate fuming is commonly used to expose latent fingerprints on non-porous surfaces, so glass, plastic, etc. Sounds a bit like the champagne flute, right? Does. And interestingly enough, in history, this method of fingerprint exposure was said to be concurrently discovered by police forces in Japan, the UK, and Canada around the late 1970s. But how is it actually done and... Is it in line with the way Ben did it in the film? Well, let's talk how it's done in real life, you know, not movie magic first. So when you're doing this fuming process, it requires not only your cyanoacrylate source, so not only your super glue, but also some heat in the range of 80 to 100 degrees Celsius, as well as some water for the humidity required to expose the prints. And, you know, these conditions collectively make cyanoacrylate fume or really volatilize and then adhere to the fingerprint. Hmm. So what happens is the print will end up appearing white and then it can be dyed into a color to make it more easily seen. So you can think of um, brushing on a pigment powder or, hey, even that UV powder we were talking about before. 
And then you can always lift the print, which is probably the least absurd part of this scene. Normally it's done with something like tape. He uses, you know, one of those like finger coverings that you'll see in labs sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the real kicker here is that if you're doing cyanoacrylate fuming, it takes some time, usually on the order of six hours to even longer sometimes to expose. Oh, okay. So, so not 20 or 30 seconds. No, but that's where the other fuming process that I mentioned kind of comes into play here. Okay. Okay. So the iodine fuming. So again, before we talk about the film version of this, let's talk about how iodine fuming is performed in real life. Effectively, to do this fuming process, you take iodine crystals, so solid material, right? Mm -hmm. And that material sublimes straight into the gas phase. So we completely- I love sublimation. It's trippy, right? Sublimation is so cool. It was the coolest part of chem lab ever. Guys, if you don't know what sublimation is, (laughs) Google it. Just don't do a picture of it. You got to get a YouTube clip or something, but just look up what sublimation is. If you do it in the context of iodine crystals, even better. But like sublimation is some cool, some cool stuff. I'm sorry, Aubrey. I just got really no, excited about sublimation. It's totally, it's totally fine. I mean, the Spark Notes version, of course, is that you're going straight from a solid to a gas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're completely skipping that liquid phase. In this case, the iodine in the fumes is sticking, once again, to the fatty acids, the moisture in the fingerprint. Okay. So okay. Same, con- same concept of how the fuming ultimately works to do your exposure. Now, in this case, iodine fuming is commonly used to expose prints on surfaces that are more like paper or cloth. And it turns out that this is actually the oldest chemical method of visualizing latent prints. In the end, the result of this process is that the fingerprint turns yellowish brown in a matter of seconds. And to be fair, they say it's yellow brown, but I've done a lot of Googling here and it looks very reddish magenta to me in online Hmm. pictures. And to be fair, that's kind of what Abigail's prints looked like on the flute. Yeah. Um, But once again, this process also requires some heat to get that sublimation process going with the iodine crystal. And, you know, Ben used iodine liquid, Mm -hmm. and that's not typically used in this process. So when it comes to whether or not this is legit, Emily, it's a little bit more complicated, okay? I would say that it's not particularly legit the way it's done in and of itself, but it is inspired by legit processes. So I, I have a couple of interpretations here. Okay, if, let's if hear them. Allow me. If, so the first interpretation is perhaps Ben was consciously trying to combine two different fingerprint exposure methods here in the hopes that one of them would work. <laughs> Right, because he kind has, of throw everything at the problem. Well, he has one chance to to make this work, and he really has limited time, right? Yes. So, so maybe that was his game plan. Though we have to be thorough and point out there was no heat involved, and there, you know, the iodine wasn't a solid. So mm-hmm. that's that's okay. That's interpretation number one. Okay. Interpretation number two, maybe. He was trying to use the iodine as the dye for the cyanoacrylate exposure process. Interesting. Right? Especially if the iodine has color to it and the print would otherwise look white if he was just using the cyanoacrylate method. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Of course, it's unclear to me if this would actually work, especially if you're not going to then turn the iodine into a gas phase with heat, right? Yeah. But again, if he was really relying on the cyanoacrylate method, he would have succeeded in exposing the prints way faster in the film than that method would have worked in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So my last interpretation here, maybe he was using the cyanoacrylate method and the other liquid wasn't actually iodine. Maybe it was some other reagent that was meant to dye the prints. Hmm. Um, then the only issue we would have would be the time of exposure. We give Hollywood movies, you know, time lapse credit all the time, right? They speed things up because they have to. Yeah. He couldn't you know, have been waiting for six hours. Exactly. So a little bit of movie magic in this one, M, but um, but it's definitely inspired by real stuff. I mean, that's that's the kind of science I like to hear, Aubrey. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> I felt very informed, and I feel like you really got to play into your chemistry knowledge there. Not at all pointing out the fact that you get to lean into your background while I don't get to lean into mine at all. But, you know, hey, that being said... Up. Take it up with the writers, okay? Yeah. Gotta get, gotta some, get more some more neuro in these National Treasure movies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, obviously. So the other really big thing in this movie is ferrous sulfate invisible ink. Now, I hope everyone already knows what I'm talking about, but just in case you don't, the ever-famous Ottendorf cipher was written on the back of the good old Declaration of Independence with invisible ink. Now, Ben's dad then says aloud that it is a ferrous sulfate ink. And perhaps for the most controversial scene of the movie, they go into (laughs) his dad's fridge and get that giant bowl of lemons from which they use lemon juice and heat, which they get from their breath, to temporarily expose the invisible ink. Aubrey, what can you tell us about this? All right. Well, um, if you didn't like me leaning into my chemistry knowledge for the last one, you're not going to like it here either. Um, (laughs) Ultimately, the science that we are discussing for this particular piece of the puzzle is chemical reactions that cause invisible dyes to be exposed, right? So the way this works in general is you will have um, what we can call an ink and reagent pair. Okay, where you're writing with one chemical and you sort of need some other chemical isn't the right word because you don't always need a chemical, but you need a reagent. You need something else to expose that ink. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this case, let's use the term reagent loosely, because depending on what your ink actually is, that reagent could be a chemical, but it could also be heat or a light source, you know, something like that. You mean? Okay. Heat. That, that is exactly what, no, actually, to be completely honest, no, and we'll get to that, that's not enough heat. <laughs> no. Which is, it's, it's, no, that is not, that is not right. They, uh, they do, though, end up using a hairdryer later on. <laughs> this is true. Which is a bit better. But anyway, um, one type of chemical that can be used as an ink is organic acids. So, something like lemon juice, Right. Um, However, it is worth mentioning that, you know, something like lemon juice probably wouldn't be used by the founding fathers to hide this ever important code or spies or anyone else who might have wanted to use invisible ink because it's actually really easy 
to almost even accidentally expose those inks. Oh, yeah. You didn't want that. No, exactly. So normally you want some very specific reagent that you have to kind of know to use. Whereas for something like lemon juice, you can use a variety of chemicals to expose it, or you can use straight up heat. So okay. not the greatest invisible yeah. ink out there if you're, you know, hiding secrets or Yeah, like you that. leave it in the sun too long and bam. Yeah, but but here for the, you know, Emily, you made a great reference to this controversy in this scene, which ironically is not putting liquid and, and heat on the back of one of the greatest and most important documents in our nation's history. It is, of course, the bowl of lemons in Patrick Gates' fridge. Yeah. So, so let's talk a bit about lemon juice, shall we? Let's. Let's do it. So so lemon juice, as I said, can actually be an invisible ink itself. And hmm. it's composed of sugar, water, and citric acid. So it's pretty much a clear, colorless liquid. And when it dries, it's invisible. So you could okay. imagine, you know, writing with it and then it going away. I'm going to try this sometime. Yeah, no, this is something we can definitely, anyone at home can test this out. It's actually, I think, a, a fairly common science experiment for kids. Um, I'm a kid. I'll do it. Yeah, for sure. And we'll document it on our social media. More on that later. <laughs> anyway, the easiest way to expose uh, lemon juice invisible ink is with heat. So the way this works is that the heat decomposes the citric acid component. Now, citric acid is what keeps actually the lemon fruit from browning. Mm -hmm. So when you are inadvertently getting sort of like lemon bits on your writing, right, from using this ink, sure. um, the citric acid keeps the paper, the, the ink and everything from browning. Okay. So if you then heat up and decompose that component that prevents browning, well, now you're going to start browning where you had that lemon juice. Mm -hmm. And on top of it, the citric acid itself breaks down the chemical composition of the paper a little bit. Oh, that's and not good. No, but now think of this. If it breaks down the paper and now you are putting heat over that broken down paper, it makes the paper kind of burn a little bit in those spots where it's weaker. So you get more browning. And so the writing would show up in brown a lot like it did in the movie. But Emily, there's a problem here. And I'm wondering if you've you've picked up on it. Yeah, you keep saying that they're using, you know, lemon juice can be used as this invisible ink. But from what I remember, the lemon juice was used to, like, reveal yeah. the invisible ink. So what's that about? Yeah. Okay. So you are, are definitely astute. That's the exact problem here. The ink in the movie was not lemon juice. Instead, lemon juice and heat were collectively used as this reagent. And again, like you pointed out, Ben's dad said that the ink on the back of the declaration was a ferrous sulfate ink. Okay, so this is a, an iron-based ink. So interestingly enough, ferrous sulfate can be used as an ink, but is exposed using chemicals like sodium carbonate, sodium sulfide, or potassium ferricyanide. Of course. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't know what those chemicals are because none of them are named lemon juice. That's true. And plus, acid and heat would have seriously damaged the Declaration of Independence, right? So, yeah. so Emily, I, it makes me sad to say that this particular aspect of the film is not legit. 
again, you could say it's slightly inspired by pieces of science that are legit, but sure. all, in, all in all here, they combined different components of these ink reagent pairs mm. that straight up would not have worked in real life. And to put the icing on the cake, your, uh, your favorite part of this, where they are collectively breathing on the document to supply <laughs> the heat. Would you like to do the sound effect again? <sighs> yeah, that ain't it, okay? <laughs> that, that would not be enough heat to expose anything, even if this was a simple ink that all you needed was heat to. You know what it did expose, you know, Aubrey? You know what it did Sexual expose? tension. The sexual tension. Yes, that's what it exposed. <laughs> the heat was good for so, something. <laughs> there was a different kind of heat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the story behind lemon juice and heat. Okay, well, thank you for that. I do have to say I am a little disappointed to know that that could not have happened in real life. Although I think we've covered... Probably the fact that many of these elements of this movie could not have occurred in real life, such as, you know, getting the Declaration of Independence to even do any of this stuff with. But that's aside from the <laughs> point. My next question also, Aubrey, has to do with the Declaration of Independence. Okay. Okay, so in this movie, they do a lot of rolling up, wetting, as we mentioned, heating, a piece of basically 200-year-old parchment paper, and somehow they manage to leave it unscathed they do all of this like multiple multiple times it's not even just like a one-off thing it's they're constantly doing they're treating the declaration of independence like it's an old homework assignment or something so (laughs) what's happening here yeah so um so spoiler alert I'll, i'll lead with the punch here it wouldn't have been unscathed okay so no straight up from the beginning not legit But I should point out that there's a really interesting article that we'll share with you on our social media this week related to this very topic, okay? Um, According to Adrian Pruitt, the collections management archivist at Tufts University Digital Collections and Archives, she says that, the, interestingly enough, the movement, the jostling, the high-speed chases, and even, you know, when the document was, like, flung into the street, in a uh, in a poster tube, if you will, all of those crazy movements of the document wouldn't have been as bad for the declaration as the constant rolling and unrolling, Emily, that you mentioned at this point, which we see multiple times in the film. Okay, so if you've seen the Declaration of Independence in real life or even photos online, you might be a little disappointed, right? Because it's pretty darn faded and you pretty much can't read anything. You can barely read the famous John Hancock signature. When, you know, when we visited M, if I remember correctly, I probably made a comment like that because that took me by surprise. It was like, it looks like a blank piece of paper. Oh my God. Right. So it said that somebody stole the declaration of independence. (laughs) It said that the constant rolling unrolling and folding of the real Declaration of Independence throughout history is one of the greatest sources of all of the damage that currently exists on the document. And that damage, Emily, apparently was visible as early as the year 1820. 
That's not long after it was written. Exactly. So it, this the document was abused, okay? Um, on top of the, the rolling and unrolling in the film, um, another thing that would have caused or could have started to cause additional damage to the declaration in the film would be the fact that it was removed from this climate controlled environment, the casing, right? Um, it's kept under a very specific flow of gas at a very specific temperature, a very specific humidity level. And so removing it from that controlled environment could also cause a lot of damage. And as it turns out, Another person who was interviewed in this article, Christopher Barber, who's the curator of rare books at Tufts Tisch Library, was quoted as saying, a sheet of parchment can curl within minutes if it's in a warm, dry room, and exposure to air that is too moist can introduce mold growth or the growth of other biological agents. You don't want a moldy declaration of independence, let me tell you. Right? I mean, that just sounds like a recipe for disaster. Um, not to mention, like we already said just, you know, minutes ago, that the acids and the heat from their treatment would have made the parchment even more brittle than it mm -hmm. already was. Right? But my favorite part of this deep dive um, is actually um, with regards to their handling of the document itself. Because I remember when you and I, one of the many times you and I watched this film, when they are in Independence Hall in the signing room and they unroll the declaration for like the 84,000th time in the film. Mm -hmm. um, and at this point, I always make a joke like, oh, this is the point where Abigail doesn't care anymore. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Because she's just like rolling it out, you know? They're doing it together. But it seems so strange, right? Because they're using their bare hands. Yeah, and you always note that that seems really weird because they're like not being careful enough. So it turns out, and this blew my mind, but thinking about it kind of makes sense. Apparently, what you're supposed to do when handling old parchment is you're supposed to handle it with clean, dry hands. Huh. And this is a methodology actually laid out and... and um, you know, advanced, if you will, by the Library of Congress itself. So it's apparently like the golden rule of archivists that you do not handle old documents with, you know, white cotton gloves like they do when they're actually testing with the lemon juice. When they're trying to be careful. Exactly. It apparently, and like I said, it makes sense when you think about it, wearing gloves can create dexterity issues and make you kind of uncertain regarding how much pressure you're putting on different parts yeah. of the document. And so you can be more likely to accidentally tear it or crack it. And gloves transfer dirt fairly easily too. So, so all in all, um probably the least surprising of our revelations today, all the activity that they do with the Declaration of Independence would not leave it as unscathed as we see in the film. And to be quite honest, a true archivist like Dr. Chase would have known just how damaging these practices would be to something so important. Wow. I have to say, I'm not super disappointed in that. I'm, I'm actually glad to hear that all of that stuff would have actually damaged the document, not because the document would have been damaged, but because like it just makes so much logical, logical yes. sense. And it's just something that they're doing in the movie that you just think the whole time you're not supposed to be doing this. Exactly. exactly. So we, we can feel we can feel better about our, you know, 
collective knowledge or our own assumptions for this one. But and we do have one more deep dive scientific point to get to here before we move into our speed round. And this one is all you. This comes from um, one of the brief moments in the film where my home state of New Jersey is featured, right? So we have um, the the statement by Ian where he tells Ben that kind of jump could kill a man. And Ben replies with, oh, it was cool. You should try it sometime. And that always makes me giggle. But of course, what we're referring to here is when Ben is escaping FBI custody, he makes this crazy jump off the deck of the USS Intrepid into the Hudson River, where he is met by someone that basically has like a torpedo underwater. And they shoot him across the river to New Jersey, where we uh, we meet Ian's henchman and then... Uh, get on the phone with Ian himself. So, Emily, would this kind of jump kill a man? I mean, that's a great question. I would like to, once again, thank you for leaving me with such a uh, great topic to really dive into here. My research on this was also uh, very scattered and very interesting. Let's just start off with, there are many things that could affect whether or not you could get injured or even die from jumping into water. Okay, so the height from that you are from the water, the angle of your body as it enters the water, the clarity of the water, and the speed at which you're traveling, all will affect whether or not you get injured or die, right? Mm-hmm. So, I did some digging, and this is a very common question that's asked, apparently, not, not specifically with the USS Intrepid, <laughs> but uh, basically how high can you jump into water without dying? Okay, so what'd you learn? So I learned, interestingly, that if you jump 20 feet from 20 feet above the water, feet first, in a perfectly straight line, you will hit the water at 25 miles per hour. Now this could cause spine compression, broken bones, or even give you a concussion. Not very pleasant. And in fact, (laughs) the World High Diving Federation recommends that you don't jump from 65.5 feet or higher unless there are like pro scuba divers like ready and waiting in the water. Hmm. All of that being said, it should be noted before we go any further that people who are professional cliff divers, because apparently that's a thing, (laughs) will jump from up to 148 feet above water. But they also can only do this without dying because they've trained for so many years and they know how to adjust their body position and the way that they jump for water conditions. So in other words, do not try this at home at all. Do not try this at home. And, you know, to give you another example, in case that wasn't clear enough, a fall from 100 feet into water would mean that you would hit the water at a velocity of 54 miles per hour. It's like faster than uh, the speed limit on some highways. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) So, ultimately, what I found out, I needed to ask some scientific-related question. I couldn't just bring you all the statistics here, right? I had to get a little science-y with it. So, I looked into it a bit, and it seems the chances of surviving a fall are really dependent on the deceleration rate of your body upon impact. So deceleration is exactly what it sounds like. It's the opposite of acceleration. Acceleration is moving quickly. Deceleration is stopping that movement. So 
I should note before we go any further that I was never good at physics. Okay, you're uh, not giving was... yourself enough credit here, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> it was my worst subject. And honestly, the physics behind this whole phenomenon gets more than a little complicated. So I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of basically right. what's happening and just throw out some main highlights of uh, some things that go into what is ultimately a really complicated equation that this uh, very seemingly very nice person on the internet used to explain all of this. So in order to figure all of this out, you need the velocity that a person is going to be traveling right before they hit the water. In order to calculate this, you need to know kinetic energy and the gravitational force that are surrounding this situation, right? Okay. So those are, those are doable. Those are doable, yeah. And, and, you know, he comes up with, like, a number from this equation. So, it, mm -hmm. like, it's doable. The next main thing that you need is the speed at which you hit the water. Okay. So for this, it's the same idea as the velocity right before hitting the water, except now your starting speed is actually the velocity right before you hit the water. So you're not starting from zero, and your end speed isn't the velocity that you're hitting the water. Your end speed is actually rest. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, and the force of the water is ultimately also going to be acting on this system. So there are really a lot of variables that come into play. And what happens is you get a really complicated equation with many different variations. And it's interesting. And, you know, maybe we'll post it um, just for those who are... <laughs> Will we? <laughs> not. Probably not. Um, it's a really complicated equation. And basically, I say all of this to get to is this a legit statement right could you know a man die or a woman die from making a jump like that honestly maybe mm -hmm. maybe in ben's case he probably would have survived the jump given that the average u.s navy aircraft carrier is probably around 60 feet okay so he was jumping off of the flight deck of the carrier Yep. And that seems to be just on average, not specifically for the USS Intrepid, because those measurements from the distance from the water to the top of the flight deck are not out there. I have looked. If anybody okay. knows this, let us know, because I would be fascinated to know. But it seems to be about 60 feet. Okay. And when you consider that, you think back to some of the earlier examples we had. 60 feet is within that range that, you know, the high diving... World High Diving Federation recommends, so you're fine. And you're fine. You're fine. Understatement. <laughs> well, something else to note is that he's a trained scuba diver. Mm -hmm. Okay? Which leads me to believe that he probably had some training on how to properly jump into the water at some point in order to prevent injury or death. You know, you were talking about rewatching scenes here. I ha have a vivid memory, actually, of this jumping scene because I've always noticed that when he's jumping off and when he gets near the water, his body straightens really mm -hmm. well, right? So yeah. this is actually one of those factors of the film that I always really love and, like, try to call people's attention to. The fact that Ben's pedigree of education and training is so relevant to every single thing that he does in the film. You know, it was so carefully crafted by the writers. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, I totally believe that he survives this. And yeah. 
Um, but I don't doubt that any random person jumping <laughs> off the deck of the USS Intrepid might die. Right? Yeah, if Ian had done the same thing, probably wouldn't have worked out as well. Exactly. You know, well, well put. <laughs> um, and, and in other words, when he tells uh, Ian, oh, you should try it sometime. He's basically saying, yeah, you're going to go die. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bold statement that, that he makes. I was actually thinking of that at the beginning when you mentioned that that line. Right? So thank you for pointing it out. Now, Aubrey, coming up next, we have something very, very special. It now, is... As scientists, we would be remiss if we didn't do some experiments to go along with this episode. So what we have done is we have created a speed round where we're going to quickly talk you through what we call our National Treasure Lab. We are going to talk about some experiments that we actually tried and we'll tell you the science behind them now. I mentioned this in the beginning, Aubrey alluded to it in the middle, and now we're going to talk about it in real time at the end. Keep an eye out on our Instagram and our Twitter for videos and or pictures of these science experiments. We did record ourselves doing all of these things and we have the results and we're going to post them for you throughout the week as we release this episode. So make sure to stay tuned. Aubrey is like super excited. Aubrey, tell us what you did for your first experiment. Okay, so uh, folks might know that we we kind of left out some different sciencey things that uh, you might have picked up on watching the film and so these last four uh, bits and pieces here were just kind of some of the easiest for us to test and so the first one actually comes to us from our dear co-host Emily it's a point that she pointed out to me when watching this film, I never really questioned, but she's totally right here. The fact that when we're finding the Charlotte at the beginning of the film, they find the Charlotte using metal detectors, right? Like the, the traditional metal detectors that you see people walking around on a beach with, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, would a metal detector work to find something metal like the bell of the Charlotte through snow and ice? And so I, I, tested it myself. Um, how I did this, basically, I should caveat this by saying metal detecting was a hobby that my dad and I had when I was growing up. Um, he likes finding old coins and other antique stuff. Uh, he's a major collector, and so he got me into it as well. So we have metal detectors. And so when I was home recently, I basically told my dad, get the batteries in the metal detector. I'm freezing up some ice, and we're going to test this out. <laughs> so um, what I did was I froze three blocks of ice that were about three inches thick a piece and um i put a quarter you know good old u.s currency on the ground and started stacking the ice blocks on top of it and every time i added a block of ice we um, you know swung the metal detector over it to see if it would detect the quarter and we wanted to see how much ice it would it would read through if if any at all so um in the end the result is that it turns out that the metal detector detected the quarter pretty reliably through two blocks of ice. So that would be a total of six inches. And then by the time I added the third block, so we're at nine inches of ice, it could not reliably detect that quarter. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, this is our speed round, so I'll keep this brief. But 
all in all, the way these metal detectors work um, is that the, the piece of the detector that you're swinging above the ground, it's usually a circle or a ring, that's called the search coil. And basically, the search coil is transmitting into the ground an electromagnetic field. Okay. And when that electromagnetic field reaches the, you know, detectable object, the metal thing, it energizes that object, causing the object to generate its own electromagnetic field in response, which the search coil then detects, transmits back to, you know, the rest of your electronics, and you get the beeping sound, right, that you got, you got your metal there. This is much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Really? I found it way simpler than I thought it was going to be. It's basically like Marco Polo, right? The search coil is saying Marco, and the the item in the ground is saying Polo, and then you're hearing the Polo, and it's like, okay, there's a metal thing down there. <laughs> okay? Does that work for you? That's fair. But the question then becomes, okay, you can read through snow and ice. I demonstrated that, and there's really no problem with that. But what about the penetration depth? How deep should you be able to use this metal detector, especially in these snow and ice conditions? And it turns out that penetration depth using metal detectors is not a simple answer, but in general can be said to be as deep as the diameter of the coil itself. Okay, so okay. other things that contribute to the penetration depth include things like the size and the orientation of the object you're detecting. So it's easier to detect larger objects deeper down, um, the type or the composition of the soil, the age of the object. Okay, so think this is metal. The longer it's been down in the ground, it's probably more oxidized or corroded, which makes it less likely to emit that you know, to be detected with that electromagnetic signal, right? Mm -hmm. So all, all things considered, you have a range of penetration depths, although you can say it's probably within the range of 8 to 20 inches. So, Emily, okay. is it legit? Yeah, it is. Really? Yeah, not just based on my, you know, rudimentary experiment, but also based on this information I was able to find out, you know, the detector would have worked to find the Charlotte's Bell, especially if it was just inches underground. And it must have been because you might remember that Ben uncovers the first glimpse of the bell using really only his hand as a shovel, right? Like he, he, yeah. he scrapes away the snow, he puts his water bottle down to illuminate the word Charlotte. So this, this should have worked. Yeah. Wow. You just completely blew my mind. That was the one thing that I was certain in all of this was completely <laughs> illogical and would never happen. So thank you not only for your scientific contribution in performing this experiment, but also for the deep dive that you did into the research side of things. Now, Aubrey, I believe that you not only performed this experiment, but you may have performed another one. Would you care to tell our listeners more about that? Yeah, so my second experiment was using a laser pointer to increase the temperature reading on a thermometer. Okay, so you might recall that Riley, when he's, you know, when we're seeing the process of how they're going to prep to perform this heist, Riley tests whether he can use a green laser pointer to raise the temperature of a thermometer. And when he discovers that he can, he uses that pointer to set off the heat sensors in the Declaration of Independence case, thereby starting our entire heist sequence. Now, 
the question of course becomes this is pretty important to know right we're going to ignore the fact that you cannot have cameras in the rotunda where the declaration of independence actually is and this is true riley put that laser pointer on the top of his camera but you know would he have been able to set off the heat sensors anyway so what i did was i went to lowe's no, Lowe's is not sponsoring this podcast, but I did go to Lowe's. And I found a basic, you know, thermometer that um, just happens to look exactly like the one Riley used in the movie. And I was very proud of this. It's got the little green frog on it and everything. Okay. And um, I used the uh, the services of my boyfriend, Brian, who happened to have a green laser pointer. And hey, Brian. Uh, Thank you, Brian, for your services. Um, <laughs> and, you know, what we ultimately did, we sh- shined the laser pointer on the base of the, the thermometer uh, to see if the temperature would, in- would increase. And in the end, it took about 90 seconds for the green laser pointer to raise the thermometer temperature by three degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Um, and this was to be fully transparent. This happened fairly slowly right 90 seconds mm-hmm. a minute and a half um and we were holding the laser pointer within an inch of the you know the <laughs> thermometer okay so so it, it worked it did raise the temperature okay but what are we what are we talking about on the science here okay so green laser pointers have a wavelength of 520 nanometers and they are too narrow and low power low powered to be visible when you shoot it through air only you know you're going to see it once it hits something like if you're giving a presentation right mm-hmm. um interestingly uh enough you'll recall that riley's laser pointer um especially in the rotunda of the archives you see the the laser pointer through yeah. the air right so it turns out that higher powered laser beams can be visible in air thanks to scattering from dust particles or water oh, droplets oh, yeah okay. that are in the, in the path of the beam um and in this case, for the for the temperature to increase, the red thermometer liquid, which is probably just dyed alcohol. I mean, we use thermometers like this in labs all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it would need to absorb green light. And okay. so, Emily, is it legit? Well, possibly. And the reason I say that, of course, is that, well, we know that Riley's laser pointer would have needed to be one of those high-powered ones for us to be able to see it shining through the air at the archives. Um, Yeah. Maybe that higher power would make the smaller temperature changes that he was looking for happen faster than in our at-home experiment where it took, you know, more than a minute to get any really noticeable change. Mm -hmm. So what we have here is either a laser pointer that was extra powerful um, and making the process happen faster, or we have a little bit of movie magic combined, right, to to make things happen faster for our viewing pleasure. So that's that one. Wow. Once again, I thought that was another thing that I was like, <laughs> this isn't real. I was like, lasers don't exist that you can see in the air. This is nonsense. And just, <laughs> apparently they do exist, and I need more scientific training, so... Hey, Thank you just, for that. It's just a, a different field. Um, but um, you are going to you know, bring us home here with our last two experiments of the day. The first one is everyone's favorite semi-science, very Nick Cage scene, right? Where we have uh, Ben Gates using a water bottle as a magnifying glass. Tell us more. Yeah, so if you guys remember, he uses the water bottle to look at the time 
in the picture of Independence Hall on the back of an $100 bill when they're chilling in Urban Outfitters. So, I will admit, I did not have a $100 bill. I'm a graduate student. We will forgive you. I had a $1 bill. In fact, that was the only (laughs) currency that I had in physical paper form in my apartment was a single $1 bill. It's currently sitting on the kitchen table with the water bottle that I used to do this experiment. So what I did is I looked at the $1 bill through the water bottle, and it was indeed magnified. I was able to look a little more closely at the eye on top of the pyramid, as well as at the symbol that is on the right-hand side of the back of the dollar bill. So what exactly is happening here science-wise, right? So... Light travels through transparent materials, such as water bottles or water, but it's fundamentally changed during this process. So basically that's because the material itself has a different density than air, right? Plastic and water, Mm -hmm. different densities than air. And because of that, the light will change direction, which is what we refer to in science, in the scientific fields as refraction. So a water bottle is basically acting in this case, like kind of a lens. So light is refracted or bent in order to make things look bigger. Now, it's important to note, and this was something that played out in my experiment as well, that the degree of magnification through this depends on the distances between both your eye and the ob- and the lens that you're using, as well as between the lens and the object that you're trying to look at. Now, I know this is very true because I had to hold the water bottle pretty close to the surface of the $1 bill in order to be able to clearly see things magnified. Now, I don't know if that was because my water bottle had some divots in it. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't a completely clear bottle. But if you'll remember, it seems like... um, I was going to say Nick Cage. When Ben had to do this in the movie, he also got relatively close to... Sorry, I'm like doing this with my hands as if you can see what I'm doing. She's pretending that she's holding a water bottle magnifying glass as we speak. Yeah. And he has to hold it pretty close to his eye in order to see um, the time on the back of the $100 bill. So is this legit? Yes. Finally, I have something that is... (laughs) Again, I have another thing that's legit. So while I think it would have been difficult, honestly, to find the exact right angle and distance between the water bottle and the bill in order to read the clock face, it's definitely possible. So the next time you need a magnifying glass in a pinch, grab your trusty plastic water bottle. And actually, hopefully now that I say that, hopefully you don't even have one because you're using a reusable water bottle and forget (laughs) that I said any of that. But If you happen to see some in the recycling bin, feel free to go ahead and grab one, fill it with some water, and check out the magnifying properties. And and you too can be Nick Cage. You can. Don't we all in this one aspect? Yeah, and don't we all want that? You know, deep down. I think so. For sure. Okay, Emily. So let's let's bring it home with. um, If we started off this this speed round or our lab round with something that has always bugged you with the metal detector. Let's um let's end this with something that has always bugged me about this film. And that is the ubiquitous use of fire to clear away cobwebs as if cobwebs wouldn't be flammable. I mean, wouldn't they be flammable? What can you tell us? 
This is a great question. Yeah, as Aubrey mentioned, this happens throughout the movie when they're in the tunnels below the church being a notable, notable instance of this. You know, there are all the conveniently located torch that they're somehow able to light. And as Aubrey mentioned, her concern has always been that things would catch on fire. Now, I have to say I was very excited to be able to do this experiment as I like fire very much. So what I did one day is I went down to the basement of my apartment complex. I took a lighter to a mass of dusty cobwebs. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up. Did anyone see you? No, I actually, and I don't think I told you this before, there were people that were downstairs taking trash away, and I had to hide behind a wall and be, like, super stealthy about it so that they didn't see me down in the area of the basement where I wasn't sure if I was actually allowed to be or not. So I felt like a super, like, secret agent doing this whole thing. Oh, uh, the things we do for National Treasure Hunt. Yeah, it was it was pretty great. I felt like I was on my own treasure hunt, let me tell you, Aubrey. So, unfortunately, when I did this, the cobwebs did not catch fire. What would, but really, what would you have done if they had? Okay, so I will say that I went down there. So I thought it was going to look weird. A bit of context. I thought it was going to look a little weird if I walked down into the basement of my apartment complex holding a lighter. Right? (laughs) That that might send off some warning signals. So I took a little bag with me Mm -hmm. and I put the lighter in it. And I also made sure that I had a water bottle that was full of water. Like, it was a big water bottle. I was ready and prepared. So before I even used the lighter, I had taken the lid off of the water bottle. I was holding it in between my legs. And I was ready in case this thing lit on fire to just throw the entire water bottle at it and put it out. Like a true scientist, you were being so careful. I was. And how was I rewarded? Nothing. No fire. There was no fire. I will note that I have seen other videos where some cobwebs have kind of sparked and lit on fire a little bit. So it's possible that the cobwebs that I chose weren't quite ideal. (laughs) But let's get a little into the science of this. So fun fact before we get a little further in, spiderwebs and cobwebs, basically the same thing. Spiderwebs, though, refer to active webs where the spider is still using it. Cobwebs refer to abandoned webs that are often covered in dust. Now this dust is gonna become important later, so just keep that in mind. Now the silk in spider webs and cobwebs, obviously, shrivels quickly. So you can liken this to polyester when it's exposed to heat. So fire can actually be used to clear out spider webs, but they themselves don't actually burn. So what you'll see in the video that, you know, we're going to post on our Instagram is that the cobwebs do kind of disappear as I'm running the lighter through them. So I am able to clear them. Now, while the spider webs themselves don't burn, apparently dust is flammable. This is something I didn't know. Seems like it would have been something that was important to know, like just in my life as an adult that's now like not living at home. I can't believe I lived with you in a dorm room and you didn't know that dust is flammable. It makes me a little retroactively nervous. Yes, well, I mean, we're still alive to tell the tale, so thankfully I didn't light anything on fire. But it makes yeah. me want to dust more, that's for sure. And when you think about it, this ultimately makes sense because dust is surprisingly like small particles of everything. So the chances that you have dust that's combustible is actually pretty high. So some things that are dust that are combustible are coal, 
sawdust, pollen, even grain, flour, and starch, stuff like that. And I should note that dust itself is defined as a powder with, quote, particles less than about 500 micrometers in diameter. But apparently finer dust, Aubrey, has a greater hazard of lighting on fire than coarse dust. And why is this? That's because of the finer dust has a larger total surface area. Now, the surface area is a very important point moving forward. So how does the surface area dust phenomenon work, right? So burning occurs on the surface of solids and liquids, right? Because it needs to react with oxygen. We we learned that in the part about exploding the Charlotte. We did. So it's like my my research is really coming full circle. It's great. The dust, as we mentioned, has a really high surface area. So what that means is that there's more area, more surface for this burning to occur. And the small mass of each dust particle actually allows for them to catch fire with more ease because it requires less energy. I buy that. So is this legit? Would these cobwebs that they're clearing away have caught on fire? Maybe. Maybe is the answer. It seems that real cobwebs would have been cleared by the torch, but probably wouldn't catch fire. It's unclear. It seems that the common trope of them actually catching on fire may come from the fact that fake cobwebs were often made of cotton, which I don't know if you know this, but that is also something that's extremely flammable. The more you know, great to know. But depending on what type of dust is coating the cobwebs, they could become flammable. So ultimately, what this means is that using torches at all, really, around a ton of cobwebs in any situation is going to be extremely risky. And once again, we see Ben Gates literally take his life in his own hands as he just valiantly and without care tries to clear away these cobwebs with this, you know, nicely located torch. Yeah. And once again, we have a, please don't try this at home scenario, you know? Yeah. I tried it at home, but don't you. Yeah. We try, we did it for you. You don't have to, Mm -mm. you learned a lot. Hopefully you learned a lot today about this and all these other aspects. So you don't feel the need to try some of these more dangerous sciency aspects of this film at home. Um, but if you want to go buy some UV powder and play around with it, like by all means. Yeah. Right. Just don't eat it, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> important things to remember. But, uh, but that wraps up our, our speed round, also known as National Treasure Lab. So as Emily mentioned, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast to check out our videos and photos from our lab because that's going to be super fun. And we were really thrilled to make the videos for you. So the least you can do is watch them, right? <laughs> right. I think I so. literally tried to light things on fire. Please watch. <laughs> and if that doesn't get you to watch, I don't know what will. Um, because we, Emily, are pretty much out of time for the 
for today. And I earnestly hope that you all enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed not only recording it, but also researching it. Because I can promise you, because we have such a passion for science, we spent a lot of time doing the digging and the labs and, you know, all the prep to make this as fun and as informative as possible. So we definitely learned something and hope you did too. Indeed, indeed. So um, also recall that our next episode will be coming your way um, soon enough. We have new episodes every other Wednesday. Anywhere you get your podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. So don't forget to subscribe for our next episode. That'll be episode nine of this season. We're really winding our coverage of the first National Treasure movie down quickly. But uh, that episode is going to be somewhat of a, um, a deep dive episode that I know, Emily, you're looking forward to on the Knights Templar and the Freemasons. So you're yes. going to want to come back for that one. And we are once again looking forward to bringing that your way. So don't forget to come back. Enjoy all the episodes up until this point, but especially this science one, it's special to us. Mm -hmm. But in any case, my name's Aubrey. I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt. <laughs> <laughs>